Bible, turn to uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and we'll be in the 20th verse, or you can follow along on the Version app. And while you're turning there, uh, we're going to do something a little different this morning uh, than what we've been doing in this series where are, we are in. Uh, you know, a lot of times we think of Easter eggs as something that is played out later, right? Like if you read a book, you maybe see a hint of what's to come next in the story, and then the next book or the book after that continues that thread that was kind of teased in the book you're reading. Or, or in a movie, you know, you see a little thread of something that's going to play out later. Uh, and that's kind of what we've been talking about with these Easter eggs, prophecies, a little bit of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. I mean, you know, for example, we've looked at the very first prophecy in Scripture all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, when man has fallen, you know, God says, hey, you know what, I'm going to, I have a plan. There's a redemption plan here, and he plays that plan out all through Scripture from the Old into the New Testament. You know, we talked about a suffering servant and Isaiah who would come and he would take the weight of our transgressions, our inequities, and he would take that suffering for us. And we see that played out in the New Testament in Jesus. And last week we talked about a coming king who would bring peace and he would ride in uh, to town on a donkey, which would be a symbol of that peace. And yet the problem was that is fulfilled, but it's missed. Peace is missed. Just 40 years later from when Jesus will ride in on this triumphal entry, he'll call out the fact that Jerusalem will be destroyed and, and people will suffer in all of this. And people missed peace in front of them. And, and so we've been talking about these prophecies, but this morning I want to talk about something different that takes place as we lead up to Easter. And, and it's something that is so profound, so important, and yet sometimes something we just miss. And, and like a lot of Easter eggs, it's something we just miss. And, you know, sometimes you're watching a movie and, you know, you talk about the movie and somebody's like, hey, did you, did you see that? No, I have no idea. I didn't see that. I didn't catch that. I didn't notice that. So you go back and you watch it again and it's like, ah, yes, I caught it. I see it now. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays. And of course, Jesus had prayed other points up to this point, off on his own. But yet, this time, we see what it is that Jesus prays. And, and his prayer is so profound. And, and he prays for a lot of different things. At the beginning of this prayer, he prays that he would be glorified and that he would be glorified so that he could take that glory and he could glorify the Father he prays then for his disciples, and, and he prays a couple of different things for them. He prays for protection and safety for them, and, and he knows, hey, they're going to go, and they're going to carry this gospel all over the place. They're going to share this gospel all over the place, and we know what happens in Acts. It's over and over and over again, the threat of persecution, the threat of their lives being on the line, and so he prays for them. But then, not only does he pray for them, for that, for protection, for safety, he also prays that they would be sanctified. They'd be sanctified by the word of truth, that they would be living in truth, that they would take that truth and they would share that truth and make that truth known. And what do they do in the book of Acts? They go all 
over the place. Look at Peter, as Ron talked about. Peter, who put your foot in your mouth. Peter, who, who became bold and, and with the help of the Holy Spirit spoke the gospel. And then he prays for one more thing, and that's where I want us to focus on this morning. In, in 20 through 26, he prays this amazing prayer, and he prays for us. And through this prayer, we see a couple of different things that, that we need to latch on to, that we need to think about, that we need to, uh, we need to take and, and look at how can we think about these things in our life. And so that's where we're going to be this morning in John chapter 17, and we're going to start in verse 20. And we're going to start with the first part of his prayer. And the first thing that he prays for in, the first, or in 20 through 23 is he prays to be unified. He prays that we would be unified. And so in verse 20, this is how he begins. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I want to stop there for just a second because I think this is so important. We cannot miss this. We must think about this often. Jesus prays here, not just for his disciples. Then he prays for all who will believe in me through their message. So the message that the apostles are going to take out and, and proclaim the day of Pentecost when so many people become believers, the, the churches that are going to start in the book of Acts, he prays not just for his disciples now, but for all people who will believe. And by extension, that message of the apostles that made its way to us. He prays for us. And so what does he say in verse 21? This is what he prays. He prays that, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He prays here that we would be one. He prays that we would be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is the connective tissue. We are to be unified. We are to be one as a church. And how do we do that? We tie ourselves to the connective tissue, which is Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ, the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his father. This is the representation that is played out in front of us. Jesus and the father are one. They are tight knit. They are one. They're two separate people. They are one connected tissue. The father is in Jesus. Jesus is in the father. They are tight knit. And that is how we should be as believers. And then he says, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That, again, is the connective tissue, the relationship that we should have with the Father, with Christ, is the same relationship that is played out between Jesus and the Father. John chapter 10, verse 37 through 38 tells us, Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. And we need to be unified just like that, and we should live in that unity together. We should be unified together to Christ and the Father. And because, really, if we're not, we're going to fall. 
if we are not connected to the Father, if we are not connected to Christ, we are going to fall. John chapter 15, 5 reminds us, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to be tethered to Jesus, to the Father. Because when people see this unity, more people will believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. Then he says in verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. We have his glories. We are partakers of his divine nature. And if we are part of this divine nature of God, if we share in this divine nature, if we share in this spirit of glory that Christ has given us and that God has given him, then that should want or cause us to grow in unity. Because the more we tap into the glory of God, the more we tap into the spirit, the more we grow. And the more we grow, the more we become unified. You see, the more you grow, the more people notice something different about you. The more that you grow, the more that people don't see Bobby or Cody or whoever else, they see Jesus and how we live. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 tells us, And we all who are unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 1 John 3, verse 2 tells us, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so this is his prayer at the beginning. I pray that they would be one, Father, just as I am one with you and you are one with me. They would be one together and they would grow together and they would glorify you and they would glorify me by how they live. And the point here that Jesus makes is clear. We are to be one. We are to be one. We are to be unified just as Christ and his Father are unified. We are to be one body. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 tell us there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are to be unified, but here is the problem. We're so divided as a church today. We are divided by thoughts and opinions we are divided by theological issues that are not salvation issues. Blood atonement of Jesus, bodily resurrection, deity of Christ, these are salvation issues. And yet, we're divided by minor things. We're divided by minor things. What type of music should we play? What should be our view on carpets and chairs? You know, I read an interesting thing the other day, and I don't know the validity of it, but I would believe it. Uh, it said that between U.S. and Canada, there is 300 different denominations. And within these 300 different denominations, there are different sects of this denomination. So 300 times, however many different sects are in there. When you look at so many of these denominations, the main things are the same. The main salvation issues are the same. And yet it's man-made doctrine that separates I think Mark Moore sums it up pretty well when he says we are saved by Jesus, not adhering to a long list of doctrinal particulars. 
But you see, that's not the only thing that divides us. We're also divided by party lines. And we believe that if you vote one way or another, you are fully defined by that party's values. Whatever your background is politically, the problem is, is so many times we let our political lines seep into the church and we become so divided by what we believe politically that soon our political lines become even more important than Jesus. And we let those things divide us. When, in fact, we are called to be unified. Scripture calls us to be unified. 2 Corinthians 13.11 tells us, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Philippians chapter 2, 2 through 4 says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Psalm 133.1, How good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. How pleasant is it when we live together in unity. And you see, this morning, the text gives us a few major reasons why we should be unified together. We're told to be unified, but why should we be unified? Well, Scripture tells us why we should be unified, and that's in verse 23. It says, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So why should we be unified? Well, the first reason is this. Unity testifies to Christ. Unity testifies to Christ. And, and I heard it said this week, and I'd never thought about it like this, but it makes sense. You know, being unified in a way is kind of like an apologetic. And what I mean by that is when we are unified as we're supposed to be, when the church is living as the church should be, like they were in the book of Acts, when we are living the way we are called to live together, then it points people to Jesus. Because if we are living together like Jesus calls us to, like, and we're living like Jesus would, then it would testify to the fact that we are quite different than the world. The world looks different than that. The world is, is for themselves, and, and, and unity is a thing that is hard to find. But if we are unified, it points people to Jesus. The second thing is unity, or unity testifies to the love of Christ. And, and I think this is true because, you know, it's really hard to tell people that Jesus loves you when you're busy fighting with somebody, Right? Like, if, if you want somebody to, to know, hey, Jesus loves you, but while you're telling them that, you're busy fighting with a brother or a sister in the faith, how are people supposed to take us seriously? You know, it, it's really hard to uh, testify to the love of Christ, to tell people how Jesus loves them when we're busy fighting ourselves. You see, the way the church acts towards the church, when the world is watching, makes people want to have nothing to do with the church. We judge one another and we throw sins of the past in people's face. We gossip about what they've done and the decisions that they've made. This shouldn't be the case. The church should look different than the rest of the world. And 
If it does, it points to the love of Jesus. And it says we are to love others as Jesus calls us to love. Romans 13, 8 through 10, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. 1 John 4, 7 through 8 tells us, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. But whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And so we are called to be unified. And when I say unified, I'm not just talking about this morning as a body of as commu- or Cornerstone Community Church, but I'm talking about a church as whole. How we love our brothers and sisters who attend other churches. How we pray for our brothers and sisters who attend other churches. For uh, building relationship with our brothers and sisters who go to other churches. And are we building unity as a body of believers? That's what we are called to do. And so, we continue on in the next part, in verse 24. And the next thing that Jesus prays in verse 24 is he prays that we would see his glory. He prays for us to see his glory. And and this is what he says. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with you where I am, or to be with me where I am, and to see my glory the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. You see, this is one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. The Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of Lord, he wants us to be with him. Now, I'd be curious to know how many of you in this room have ever been invited to hang out with royalty? You know, the Queen of England. Show of hands, have you ever been invited to hang out with a queen or a king? Okay, I, I haven't either. So um, Maybe you've been invited to hang out with the president. Have you ever been invited to hang out at the White House? If you have, show of hands. Okay, I was thinking maybe at least one person would raise their hand. Like, hey, I've been invited to the White House. I was going to say, if you have, that's really cool. Um, I've never been invited to the White House. Maybe this one is a little closer have any of you ever been invited to hang out with a celebrity? Yeah, I mean, sometimes we get, I mean, I've never been asked to hang out with a celebrity, but I, I've met a few people that I consider celebrities. Uh, I once had two writers that I really liked uh, reply to a tweet. I mean, does that count? Like, I'll, I'll count it. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's why I say all this. Very rarely are we ever invited into the palaces of royalty. Very rarely are we invited into the White House in the Oval Office. Very rarely are we invited to hang out with celebrities. And yet, here we are, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Savior, while he is praying for believers, all believers, he prays that someday we would be with him where he is at, that we would see his glory on full display, that one day we will 
bow down in heaven before our Father in heaven, before the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is amazing to me that he would pray this. And, and so here's the question that I want us to, to ask this morning. How much do you think about heaven? If you were to be honest with yourself, how often do you think of heaven? Truth is, probably not very often. Truth is, or truth is, you probably don't think about it nearly as much as you should. Truth is, probably, we tend to avoid it for, for a lot of different reasons. I'll be honest, I don't think about heaven sometimes as much as I should. And there's a lot of different reasons why I think we don't. I think sometimes it's, you know, we're so distracted, we're so busy by the things we have going on here today that it's a little hard to turn our gaze away from everything that's happening. Maybe sometimes it's just the fear that if we have to think about heaven, that means we have to think about our immortality. We don't want to think about what's next we want to think about the here and the now. We don't want to think about death and what that means. It's as the famous lyrics goes, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And so we tend not to think about heaven very often. When the truth is, we should look forward to heaven more than we do. We should think about heaven and, and what's in store for us as believers. We should think about what is waiting there for us. Think of what David says in Psalm, 1, or in Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And then there's Paul. Think of what Paul says in Philippians 1, 23 through 24. And this is just another example of why I love the Apostle Paul. But he says this, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul's like, man, I'm torn. Like, I want to I be in heaven. I want to be with my Lord and Savior. I want to be in front of the Father. That's the best course of action, but it is necessary that I stay and preach the gospel to you, so I'll stay. Right? I mean, that, this guy is like, I'm torn between heaven or preaching the gospel. That's amazing. But he was looking forward to that. And you know, Scripture tells us to think about heaven. Colossians 3.1 Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And so why should we think of it? Well, we should think of heaven because our names are there. Our inheritance is there. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. However, do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And most importantly, of all reasons, our Savior is there. Do you remember in Acts chapter 7, 55, Stephen has been stoned and he's on his way out in Acts 7, 55. It says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And, you know, I understand we don't think about heaven as often as we should. And, and the truth is, we have work to do here. 
We have a mission to fulfill while we are here. We need to make sure that the gospel is presented. We need to make sure that while we are here, people know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We have a mission to live out while we are here. And we don't know when our time will come to receive that reward. It could come at any time. We don't know. But I know this. It is not wrong to think about what is waiting for us. It's not wrong to think about the fact that someday we will see the glory of Christ on full display and we will bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's not wrong to think about that. And so Jesus continues his prayer in verses 25 and 26. And this thing he prays for here is he prays that he would continue to make him known. He prays to make him known And the last of this prayer is, as John MacArthur calls it, a long amen. It's a long amen. And this is what he says. He says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I I myself may be in them. And so this long amen, this conclusion to this beautiful prayer. He states off right at the bat that the world doesn't know the Father. They've rejected the Father. They've chose not to listen to the Father. They've chose to ignore the Father. The world does not know the Father. However, Jesus knows the Father. And they know that the Father has sent Jesus. Why do they know that? Because Jesus has made it clear to everyone, I have come to do the work of my Father. I have been sent by my Father. Everything you hear me saying do is to bring glory to the Father. He has made it known that he has been sent by the Father. And so the Father has sent me and I have made you known to them. And I will continue to make you known to them. Jesus has come and he has told us all who the Father is and what his purpose is for coming. And now he has made himself known to all of us. And he continues to make the Father and himself known. So how does he do this? How does today the Father can, or Christ continue to make the Father known? Well, the first thing he did was he sent the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit. You may not know this about me, but I'm a big fan of the Holy Spirit. Um, I don't know if we've talked about him in the book of Acts. I think he's very underrated for the work that he does. He's important. He's the advocate. He is the one who has come to make Jesus known to us today. Look what happens in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes onto the scene. We can't talk about how Christ is still working today without talking about the Spirit because the Spirit comes and the Spirit brings the words of Jesus to us and the Spirit brings us the message of Jesus and we have this advocate between us and the Father and he was sent to be a witness to Jesus. John 16, 13 through 14 tells us that when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he has made known to you. It is the words that he speaks are from Jesus himself. So he makes 
himself known to us today through the Spirit, but he also makes himself known to us today by his word, by his word, by the Bible that you hold in your hand or in, in, you know, in leather bound or hardback or in, in phone form, however you call it, digital, whatever. That's the word that, that he reveals himself to us today. And here's the great thing. We need to be in God's word all the time. And so we have outlets for us to be in God's word all the time. There's not a time that you, you, that you can't say like, oh man, there's no way I can be in God's word now. No, you can be in God's word while you're driving your car or wherever you're at in your house. You can be in God's word because we've got, you can open the version app and there's all the translations and you can be in God's word while you're driving your car because there's a little play button on there and you play it and you can hear God's word in your car. God's word is all around us. We are able to be in the word of God. So why do we choose not to be in the word of God? We need to be in the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The words you hold in your hand, on your phone, wherever, however you read, it's there for all sorts of different uses, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training, and righteousness. It's all right there. I love how Psalm 119, verse 9 says that, how can a young person, I think any person, says Oliver, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. If you want to live the kind of life that you are supposed to live, then it starts by being in the word, in God's word all the time. And why? It's because God's word is truth. Psalm 119, verse 160, all your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Everything in this word is true. It's God-breathed. And it's there for us to use to grow closer to him. God reveals himself. Christ reveals himself to us today through this word. And so he prays these things. God, help them to be unified. Help them to be one. Help them to live together in peace and harmony, making us known to the people around them. God, someday I want to be with them where I am. So please help them to live the kind of I have put their help them to put their faith in me so that guess what? Someday they can live with me. And then he prays, I'm going to continue to make myself and you known, Father, to them. So that way you they know the love that you have for me and that love would be in them, and I myself may be in them. He makes himself known to us so that in all times we are connected to the Father, we are connected to the Son. And so here's what I'm even more in awe of. I'm in awe of the fact that Jesus would pray for you and for me before what happens next. Soon he will be arrested. Soon he will go through trials that are fixed, Soon he will be beaten, soon he will be mocked, soon he will have to carry a cross, and soon he will die on that cross. But here's the good news, he will not stay in that grave, he will raise from the dead, and all of this will be done for us. 
Hebrews 12.2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, maybe you're here this morning, and, and it's hard to believe that not only would Jesus pray for us, but he would also go to the cross for us, that he would die for us, and that's exactly what he has done, and maybe you're here this morning, and you've never given your life to him, you've never put your faith or trust in him, and maybe this morning, that's what you need to do, maybe you've never made that decision, well, in your connect cards and the chairs around you, if you've, if you've never made that decision, you can write that out, we would love to talk with you, love to pray with you, or maybe this morning, you Man, you just need to give your life to him and you want to do that here. If that's the case, I would love to pray with you, love to talk with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and our eyes haven't been fixed on our, our Savior, the same Savior who prayed for us, who asked us to be unified, who asked us to, to do what we needed to, to be with him, to, to get to know him better. Maybe we haven't been doing those things and maybe we've been struggling with division. Maybe we've been struggling with fixing our eyes on him. Maybe we've struggled to be in his word and to trust the Holy Spirit. Maybe this morning what we need to do is we need to spend time praying to him. And if that's the case, right where you're sitting, you can pray. If you want to pray with me, I'd love to pray with you. And here's what Jesus wanted from us, to be unified. Make an effort to be unified with your brothers and sisters. Man, if you're holding on to a grudge, if you're holding on to something, I pray that you would work that out because we're not called to battle one another. We are called to love one another and to be unified with one another. And when things are going tough, fix your gaze on Him. Fix your gaze on heaven. And yes, I know sometimes we don't want to think about what's next, but man, our inheritance is there, life with our Savior in front of our Heavenly Father. Nothing could be better than that. And strive every day to draw closer to Him. Through the Holy Spirit, through God's Word, draw close to Him. And this morning, if you have a decision to make, I pray that you do so as we stand and we sing.